Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find DrLauraJansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com. And Jay Gunkelman, hey, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. All the links will be in the bottom of the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. My name is Pete, and today we're going to answer some listener questions as well as address some mental health news items. Listener question from Lisa C. Is everybody ready? Sure. Hello, Pete. I'm a therapist using Lens Neurofeedback. I've been working through the podcast episodes, and it's wonderful. Thank you, Lisa C. Keeps us going. I hope you all keep it going. I have a couple suggestions uh, and questions to address. From the parent's or client's point of view, she often gets asked, how long will it take and how long will it last uh, regarding neurofeedback? Many do not seem to understand that much of the great changes and symptom reductions are long-term. I'd love to hear Skip, uh, Laura, or Jay's take on that. How long is it going to take, guys? Bam. Uh, I can probably go first to do it quick. I'll, I'll, I can be the quickest because I do the less, least neurofeedback and, and probably uh, know the least. But I can say the the, the effects last. Um, the the people we've done neurofeedback with, um, in addition to the symptoms they come in for and the symptom reduction they experience, they also then experience increase in other capabilities that they weren't anticipating. Uh, and I'll put it this way without trying to be too too sarcastic um they they don't come back right because they're they're okay they're better um we had a little girl came in make it real quick really high anxiety even some trickle tillamania hair pulling and those kinds of things eyelash pulling out not only did those things cease within two sessions but the anxiety subsided and uh head scratchered everyone her handwriting got better so it was uh you know happy celebration all the way around and, and so that, that's just to sum it up, um, my experience it, 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 that the effects last, uh, maybe some touch up or uh, some tune ups here and there um, with TBI in particular. But again, in our experience for the, the majority of people we've seen that the symptoms um, tend to abate and then stay away. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll pass the torch. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not a I, I don't do lens at all. I know it's like a low frequency radio waves that they they apply but to, to the point just in general about biofeedback uh, or neurofeedback or any feedback i guess it's it's operant conditioning right so you repeat the same training over it's reward based learning right so you, you repeat the same training over and over again and in the theory is it sticks um, I always bring up my my new puppy when we talk about operant conditioning because I'm always trying to train him to do something and the, the current thing, he's only six months. And the current thing we're trying to train him with is, is the potty training. For whatever reason, his breed, his owner, I don't know, can't, can't get him quite changed. And I think part of the reason is the operant conditioning. When we first got him, it was the middle of the winter <clears throat> here in Chicago. And we had this cold uh, snap for a couple of weeks, like 30 below, like super freezing outside. And so I couldn't, didn't want, I probably could, but I didn't want to let him out in, in such a cold, you know, when he was eight weeks old, he was so tiny, he'd freeze to death. 
So anyway, I put the, you know, some uh, papers down in the house and he, that was the first thing he learned and he got rewarded for doing it right in the house. And once the couple weeks were over with the, with the cold, then we tried to put him outside and he just wanted the same thing he learned to begin with. So now we're, you know, retraining. So anyway, the point back to the question is, you know, how long does stuff last? Well, I guess it depends on the age of the pup, uh, probably, and how many repetitions and in how well you can, you know, untra- untrain, you know, whatever was, was trained um, in the wrong direction. As far as lens, uh, again, I'm, I'm not um, up on that, but I know it's uh, invisible radio frequency and very, very weak. And so I think the question is, you know, does it really do anything at all? Because the signal is so weak and, and uh, maybe um, Jay has more info on, on how lens works. Independent of how lens works, I think that the question of longevity of the effective neurofeedback is something that can be answered. Um, now, it's, it's tempting to just answer it based on a case experience. You know, I trained little Johnny and little Johnny got better. And, you know, that's four years ago and Johnny's still great. But, you know, that's, that's an anecdote and it's better to actually uh, look at uh, an actual research project. And in 2019, uh, some, uh, some folks that I know uh, in Europe published in the uh, European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Journal, and uh, they did a meta-analysis, and they had an N of uh, 256 uh, clients and control group of 250. So this isn't a small, you know, little Johnny got better. This is actually a good size meta-analysis. They pulled the studies only um, uh, from uh, Scopus and PubMed uh, that had follow-up, not just intake to outtake, like what, you know, the end of the training, how do they do, but also a follow-up. And uh, the the follow-up basically out to 24 months. And what they what they tracked this is for ADD ADHD so you know it's a it's a limited application to ADD uh, but the general learning curve thing here ends up working for other uh, applications as well. They looked at both inattention and hyperactivity, and what they found is that from intake to outtake, the the training actually had a positive impact on both of those um, uh, measurements. Now. Uh, in for inattention, the effect size, which is the ability to differentiate two groups, the control group and the clinical group, uh, there there was actually a, a medium size effect, uh, and and that was a, an effect size for those of you who are into the stats of zero point six four, which is a medium effect size, the ability to again separate treated for versus non treated. That effect size at follow up. 24 months later was now a 0.8, 0.8, which is now a large effect size. You can differentiate the two groups even better. So little Johnny and the 256 little Johnnies got better. And they not only did they get better, but they continued to get better even more than what had been trained. Now this, you know, how does that happen? Well, it, it, you all probably learned how to ride a bike. Uh, your, your father may have run along behind you holding the seat like mine did. And uh, eventually you get going a little bit and they let go of the seat 
you might crash a few times, but eventually your father doesn't have to run behind you holding up the seat. You can actually ride. That's like from the beginning of therapy to the time you're out the door. You're now riding on your own. Now, I remember when my dad no longer held the seat. I wasn't all that good at it yet. I was still kind of rickety on my bike and a little bit more practice. And pretty soon I'm riding with no hands, um, uh, doing you know funny little tricks and jumping curbs and doing things that I couldn't have possibly done just during the training of how to ride the bike. So if you continue to use a skill, you continue to get better at it. And controlling your brain is a skill that you've learned. If you're continuing to do that, you continue to get better at it. So from intake to outtake, there was progress. But at 24-month follow-up, there was even more progress. Not that they had to continue to train, that they actually continued to use what they had learned and got better at it. So now they're riding bikes with no hands 24 months later, when it, whereas just out the door after training, they might've been a little rickety. So uh, that, and that, that study was uh, uh, Martine Arns, who's done uh, a lot of publications and uh, obviously popped on here with us. Um, uh, Uta Strail, and Uta was the head of the uh, laboratory in uh, uh, Tübingen, Germany, um, a, a major laboratory doing work in Europe. Uh, and also Sandra Liu from UCLA's uh, psychiatry department. And there, there were three or four others. I just don't know them personally. So these three, I, you know, I know really well. And um, uh, they, they all were uh, involved in this study. Uh, a major publication, uh, obviously peer-reviewed Medline listed journal, um, major institutions worldwide involved in the publication. And a very, very positive uh, uh, review of the long-term efficacy of neurofeedback, not just during the training. You know, they didn't do booster sessions or anything. They basically did follow-up up to 24 months later, and they found progressive uh, increases in the skill set uh, that had been trained. So uh, answering the question, how does it, you know, how does it, last it lasts really well it lasts better than just the end of training it didn't just stick it actually was a skill that got better and that's good news i mean compare it to medication if you quit taking the meds you don't still get better and better and better in fact the amphetamines and ritalin and medications that you take for add adhd when you quit taking them you revert. And I can say that based on research as well. Uh, you know, they, uh, they basically worked in a school setting and they gave uh, 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 medications to everybody in the study. But half of the people that got the meds also got neurofeedback. And six months later, everybody had their meds discontinued. The people that had the neurofeedback stayed well their ATD was still not problematic. The people that got meds only reverted to their ADD HD ways. So, you know, how does it last? Neurofeedback lasts really well and people continue to get even better. Medications, when you quit them, you kind of revert. So, you know, it, 
uh, you've got to keep the effect of neurofeedback in perspective of what happens with other treatment approaches. And it obviously is really superior to the discontinuance of medication and the reverting back to the ADD, ADHD ways. Now, the study also found that inattention was more significantly treated than impulsivity hyperactivity, which had positive effects, but the, the, the impulsivity hyperactivity was not as powerfully treated as the inattention. The effect size for inattention was larger than that for hyperactivity impulsivity. Anyway, that's some of the research that's out there. And you know me, I, I stick my nose into the research. Uh, the other question was, you know, the parents want to know, they're asking this person, how long does it take? And yeah. I know the first word is depends, uh, but what would, what do the clinicians tell the parents when they ask that question? How long does neurofeedback take to get the symptoms to go away? It depends. <laughs> uh, and I want my, I want my degree. Uh, so, you know, uh, if what you have is simple ADD, uh, inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, uh, without uh, emotional disturbances, without PTSD, without uh, learning disabilities, with, you know, if you have just pure ADD, ADHD, uh, there was a book at one point written called The 20-Hour Solution. And that kind of upset a lot of neurofeedback people because the people who read it thought it was like 20 sessions because, uh, you know, it's, but it, it's not. Um, it's 20 hours is actually more like 30, 40 sessions. And that's the general expectation for somebody who's just got a pure and simple ADD. 30, 40 sessions, you're, you're all done. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not an effect before the end of training. If you have a session where you get your brain just right, the neurochemistry of having your brain just right is kind of like having a single dose of a medication. Uh, it's, it's called a session effect, and you can be much better after a good session. But that's going to fade like the medication would fade. You haven't learned to change your state in a, in a, a volitional way. You've just had the positive effect of getting to the right spot for a moment. So... Um, you'll have some positive effect early, uh, but, but it won't stick. You've got to continue with the training. Uh, and again, 30, 40 sessions, usually simple ADD, ADHD is effectively treated. However, if you add in a learning disability, the learning curve is going to be delayed. It's going to take more time. If you add in a little Asperger's trait or full autism and ADD, uh, you, you end up more like 60 sessions or 80 sessions. So the, you know, how, how long it depends as, as you said, um, if it's pure and simple, it's fairly quick, 30, 40 sessions. Uh, as you add in additional symptoms, it's more complex. For epilepsy, I usually tell people it's going to take 100 sessions, maybe more. And at that point, I usually try to get them set up with home uh, training in some fashion because, you know, if, if you're doing 100 sessions, just the logistics of getting back and forth to an office sometimes can be overwhelming. And um, uh, once you've got uh, 10 sessions or so to know the protocol is appropriate, um, if the parent 
can operate a computer and can figure out where to stick the electrodes properly. Uh, that can be monitored at a distance, kind of like we are online. You can see, you know, if, <laughs> you can see where on my head I'd have uh, electrodes and I've got a lot of turf that doesn't have any hair on it. So uh, I, I'm an easy target, uh, but to, you can see where they've got the electrodes and you can actually operate the computer at a distance so that you can monitor the session or actually run the session at a distance. And um, if you have to do over a hundred sessions, it's good to have uh, something that can be done at home and monitored remotely. The, the lingo that we use in neuropsych, at least me and Skip and, and our mentor, uh, they talked about procedural learning. So, um, you know, we have declarative learning, which is, you know, you're learning words or, you know, learning to memorize the state capital or the words of the constitution that we call that declarative, something you can declare. Procedural learning is behaviorally based, we'll say unconscious or implicit learning, just like you, you mentioned riding the bike. Um, you can read a book about riding bikes, but it tells you really nothing about riding a bike. So we're talking about procedures. And Skip and I, you know, do a lot of learning disorder um, testing. You know, you, you do uh, dyslexia, you know, they call it a reading disorder testing. And um, it's possible to have uh, an impairment in procedural learning. So individual word reading is a procedure. Single digit math is a procedure. And you can go on, on and on with procedures, you know, bike riding and, and throwing a ball and things like this. So um, it's possible to uh, assign someone a diagnosis of a reading disorder, and it means they can't learn um, or can't learn easily. You know, I'm, I'm the last person to say someone can't do something, but it's, it's super effortful and, and difficult. And, um, you know, I've known plenty of adults who've, you know, had all sorts of reading intervention and, and really can't read. So anyway, my, my question is, have, you know, what's your position on someone can't learn uh, via neurofeedback? Is there an individual and how would you tell? Well, in fact, there is uh, a, a, the classic uh, efficacy percentage that, you know, who can learn, who can't. Uh, offices have reported historically 80% people can learn the neurofeedback task and 20% couldn't. Uh, when we added in QEG-driven neurofeedback or QG-guided neurofeedback is more appropriately the, the phrase, um, we ended up cutting the number of people that couldn't learn uh, in half to 10%. Um, so uh, there, there are some people who don't, uh, don't get it, that uh, operant uh, presentation of information, whether it's motivational or a, a foundational learning disability, um, there, there's not really been an appropriate level of study of our failures, uh, which, you know, <laughs> if you're on top of uh, a treatment, you want to study the people that you don't treat effectively too. Not, you know, we're, we're busy studying the positive clinical impact and effects. And if we're really doing our job as a field, we're going to look at who we can't reach and try to figure out what is it about them that makes them the folks that we can't reach? So there are some. Now, in uh, uh, dyslexia, we, we commonly see the right posterior temporal parietal junction, Wernicke's area, not working right. If you fix that, at that point, we, we can end up with a, a positive impact on their dyslexia. We've seen a number of people who were, you know, classical dyslexia with what 
might consider full dyslexia where they have letter reversals, spatial, uh, B's and D's, um, uh, P's and Q's, you know, the minding your P's and Q's is something I never really understood as a, as a phrase until I saw somebody who was dyslexic who couldn't tell the difference. So, um, but once you get the right, excuse me, the left temporoparietal junction working uh, where Wernicke's area, which is language receptive uh, perception, the, the dyslexia is effectively treated. Uh, and if you don't get that area working, the dyslexia is really going to be pretty pervasive. It's, it's very, until you get that neural substrate working, all the attempts at this is a P, this is a Q, and, you know, they look the same to me. So until you get that area working, you really are, are the therapies don't really click. But as soon as you get that area working, then the speech and language pathology people that are working with the first person end up having, suddenly they say, I don't know what you did. I don't know what happened, but suddenly little Johnny can now, you know, uh, uh, read appropriately. and doesn't seem to have the dyslexia. We do need to get the location in the brain functional before you can populate it with the experience. And the neurofeedback goes really well together with other therapies as an adjunct to the other therapies to help get the neural substrate functional. On that last note, Jay, uh, I think that's a good opportunity, right? Just to remind that, hey, neurofeedback's fantastic. It's also a, a, a good piece of an overall approach, meaning a multimodal approach to treating someone. I'm thinking about somebody I just saw yesterday, a uh, 66-year-old woman who uh, likely had cerebral palsy as a kid, undiagnosed. Um, but anyway, uh, reading disorder. If she were to go through training for what you're describing and the capacity to be able to develop a reading skill was now available to her, she would need other interventions to be able to do that. She has 66 years of not being able to read and that's helped her construct her, her image of herself. Right. And so again, that's just a maybe sideways uh, way of, of reinforcing this idea. Like she would need other folks besides us just doing neurofeedback. Right. If neurofeedback opened up the area that could perceive, you would still have to populate that with the experience of reading. It, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to end up reading Shakespeare um, if you've never read. You've got to actually uh, wake up the neural substrate, populate it with the experience that it's supposed to have had. And at that point, you can start to actually use it. But again, it, you know, it, it improves with function uh, after the training. And, uh, you know, we, we open up the, the function in the area. And at that point, you actually have to use it to end up with it fully functional. You know, we, we can turn the area on. You've got to populate with the experience. Okay. From the clinician side, here's another question. I would like to get BCIA certified and EEG certified. Are there courses or trainings that your team would recommend? Anything to avoid? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a depends that's a yeah <laughs> you know uh, uh and what, what part of it was i answering yes to whether there were courses or whether you got to watch out so um you know rather than point to specific courses that and and there are plenty of them yeah. what i would suggest is if you're interested in a bci certification go to the bcia.org website 
they have the courses that they have as approved coursework listed. And at that point, you've, you've got an entire list. Uh, go through the list and find the ones that appear to be uh, uh, local if you, you can't travel, uh, remote if you can't travel at all, um, uh, uh, who, who's teaching it, uh, what kind of equipment they might be oriented towards. If you're, if you're involved in a particular user group that uses a particular kind of equipment, you'll probably want to end up with a training course that actually focuses on the hardware that you might be using. There's some courses that are agnostic with respect to hardware. They'll, they'll show you all of them. Uh, others will have a few, but they'll focus on one brand because that's kind of who's sponsoring the, the coursework. So BCI is going to require them to do more than just one, but they don't necessarily require them to do every single piece of hardware. So, you know, it's, it's still kind of buyer beware out there. Uh, you, you, you've got to do a little bit of research as to which course matches up more completely with you, but start at the BCIA website and find accredited coursework and at that point, you're uh, you've got a leg up over uh, uh, something that's just a commercial uh, presentation. Uh, BCIA has accredited coursework for certification. They also have recertification coursework that's just continuing education credits. Um, there's plenty of courses that you get credit for, but for recertification, not necessarily for uh, your initial certification. There's specific didactic courses with that cover their, what they call their blueprint material. Uh, you can get the list of blueprint material. What, you know, what areas are you gonna have to know about in order to get certified? You can flip through that blueprint and say, I know that area and that area, that area. Oh, here's an area I don't know about. So you can actually kind of uh, prep yourself for what areas you need to brush up on as well. Uh, uh, BCA is really quite open and interactive if you call uh, they've got people to chat with you about what you're doing, what can help, uh, and, and help guide you. So uh, feel free to reach out to the CIA. Um, the, uh, they're, they're really uh, quite a good group. And they're international. It used to be Biofeedback Certification Institute of America, BCIA. It's still BCIA, but it's now Biofeedback Certification International Alliance. Um, uh, years ago, I was in Australia. And they were talking about setting up their own certification. And I said, well, why are you reinventing the wheel? Why don't you talk to BCIA and have them uh, provide you with a, a, an examination, you know, uh, and coursework uh, certification here in Australia too. And they, they took that as good advice for, you know, I mean, anybody listening to me, you got to think twice about how good advice it is, but the, they took my advice and, and interacted with BCIA and now BCIA changed their name from just America to International Alliance. Uh, there are Europeans who also uh, used uh, BCIA. Now, BCIA also had to expand their coursework. In Europe, they do more slow cortical potential work than here in the United States, and that wasn't really part of BCIA's original coursework. So they had to expand their blueprint of knowledge uh, to, to meet the international flavor of all the folks that were needing to be certified. And it, uh, it expanded the uh, examination appropriately to, to uh, reach a, a, full, a full palette of the 
kinds of uh, training and kinds of neurofeedback that are out there. I always have to remind myself that the certification means you've met the minimum educational requirements and uh, some hours of training, um, actually doing doing the neurofeedback. And I, I think what I get from it is that it distinguishes who's devoted to you know, looking at the research and understanding things from a more scientific uh, standpoint, and it, you know, distinguishes those certified from people kind of making up their own rules and hanging up their shingle. Um, And it doesn't mean that you're an expert. It means you're devoted to the study and you've met the minimal requirements. So I think we have to think about that and consumers should you know, look not only at the certification, which, you know, is a step above, you know, the, the shingle hangers, but um, uh, look at the years of experience uh, when, when they're trying to choose a, a practitioner. I agree with that. Now, there are societies as well. BCI is a certifying body, not a membership organization. In fact, if it's a certifying body and a membership organization, you got to think that it's just a bunch of self-certifying. So it's good that they're not a membership organization. You can't be a member of BCIA. Uh, they don't self-certify people that pay their membership dues. Um, but there are membership organizations that don't certify. Um, ISNR and APB are the two uh, large international organizations there's European organizations called SAN, uh, Society for Applied Neuroscience. They have a, uh, their own membership organization that's kind of an integrated APB and ISNR in Australia. Um, ANSA, uh, Applied, Neuroscience, Applied Neuroscience Society of Australia, uh, ANSA. And it's Australasia, it's not just Australia. You, you can go to a membership organization and in their annual meetings, you usually find a course being trained or taught uh, by people that are senior in the field for people who are interested in BCIA certification. They're prep courses. Now, they don't hand you the exam and say, question number three is going to be this or anything like that. They, they teach the material, but they don't teach the test. So, uh, it, you know, you still have to pass a test that n- nobody's going to hand you the test up front. There are... Uh, prep tests that are out there. Some of the teaching organizations have some trial exam uh, type things to, to see whether you can actually, you know, pass a test on the general material, but it's not the test that you're going to take from BCIA. Maybe coincidentally, um, ISNR's annual conference is next week for folks that might be interested in just checking out what's going on. It starts, I think the 25th. I just got an email about a, a happy hour um, virtual, uh, maybe on the 23rd with a way to maybe peruse what's going on. And, and that's yeah, a, ven- a vendor, uh, a, yeah. a vendor yeah. happy hour the, uh-huh, the, uh-huh. the night before. Yeah. So yeah. next week for that. What about, yeah. what about the, the, you know, I'm doing air quotes, but the, 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 the D the doctorate QEGD programs and things like that. Um, just any thoughts, Jay or Laura, and I'm asking for myself too, right? I'm, wondering if it's so the information is always valuable um personally less interested in the acronyms at this point just want to be competent um but nonetheless you know sometimes they have value the for people who are into uh eeg qeg there are uh two certifying bodies for qeg 
uh, ISNR kind of spun off one uh, along with uh, 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 the ECNS group. Um, and then there was one that was, uh, that's been in existence for, oh goodness, uh, since the mid 1990s. Uh, There's two options there. They're both uh, exams. They're not membership organizations again. And uh, they they both have uh, people that pass and people that fail. So uh, it it isn't that the exam is a piece of cake. Um, You have to actually know pretty good depth on uh, EEG, QEG in order to pass the exams. The QEG uh, D is, uh, uh, QEG T is a tech uh, certification. You're technically competent at it. QGD is a little bit more extensive. Uh, you're more into the interpretation of it, not just the technical processing of it. Uh, the QGD also has a, a QGD emeritus, uh, which I have. Uh, there, there's not too many of them that are so old and decrepit that, that, that they're now emeritus, but there, there are a handful of, of folks, literally, I think less than a handful of, of folks that have that at this point as well. On the flip side of that question, uh, is clinicians asking any recommendation on equipment that would allow me to do QEEG's lens is somewhat different than traditional neurofeedback as it's more a disentrainment method and does not record the EEG for viewing after. It has been an amazing addition to my practice and my therapists under me are all trained on it, but the cue ability is something I definitely want to add. Yeah, first of all, a QEG device is basically an EEG amplifier that has enough channels. And if you don't have at least 19 channels, you really can't call it a QEG. There are some that are less than 19 that call it a mini Q, and a mini Q is kind of like being partially pregnant. I mean, what the <laughs> hell is it? You know, uh, if it's not really a Q, uh, full full Q with 19 channels, it's not really a full Q. Uh, what part of the brain do you think isn't important enough to monitor? So uh, you, uh, the, the, I understand the uh, uh, intent of the people who are doing mini Qs, two, ch- two channels at a time, monitoring a bunch of different spots, but you can't really look at how the brain is really working. It's better than not looking at all. Uh, but I don't look at that kind of data myself because I, beneath the standard of practice for me, looking at a full EEG, there, there's standards for EEG and two channels doesn't really cut it. Uh, six channels, eight channels doesn't really cut it anymore. So um, if you're talking about a full QEG, 19 channels or more, uh, and nowadays there's lots more, um, uh, the, there's lots of equipment out there. The equipment ranges from about $5,000 for the cheapest ones that are reasonably still of some quality. Uh, you can buy some cheaper ones from uh, Asia and uh, some poorly engineered ones that are still floating around. But 5000 is about as cheap as you can find something that's worth spending money on at all. Uh, uh, the, uh, I'm not going to promote one brand or another brand because th- that's not necessarily who I am. Um, uh, I'm not here to sell you an amp. Um, th- there are lots of good devices out there. Uh, go to ISNR or go to APB, and at the meeting, you're going to be able to try 
side by side by side by side. All of these various amplifiers that are available. Uh, there's some very, very good options. Um, the, uh, price points, again, vary from about 5,000 for the low, lower end uh, uh, expensive, uh, less expensive ones to about uh, 30,000 for uh, a, an amplifier that's really high quality, but still, you know, same QEG recording um, that an adequate quality for medical processing, basically, you know, 5,000, if you can't afford much is you're going to have to pony up at least five and 30 looks a lot more expensive, but, you know, depending upon what you're doing with it, uh, it it's still a reasonable price. When I think back at the first amplifiers I had to buy for QEG, they were $165,000 a piece. And I had to buy four of them for the lab. Uh, and, and now they're like $5,000. Is that like a disposable app? You know, that, you know, so uh, I, I'm looking at the prices thinking, oh my God, I can buy them by the dozen now. You know? But, um, you know, it's still 5,000 is a big, a big leap for somebody just starting something up. So, um, you, you, you know, look around, uh, find something that works well for you uh, and uh, try them out. Uh, get to one of these meetings. It's worth a few hundred dollars of admission to a meeting to try all the amps that you're going to possibly spend 5000 to $30,000 on. A few hundred bucks to do the research is, you know, quite a, an affordable uh, investment. I think it's probably the same question about the gel-free uh, caps. We're going to ask about that? Eh, dry, dry sensor caps, eh, you know. Uh, if they worked really well, I would love it, but they don't work as well as paste on discs and the, uh, the, none of them so far have really met full medical quality guidelines as far as, um, you know, being interchangeable. Uh, they're getting much better, uh, but they're still not quite there. Uh, um, not, not ready for prime time. Well, for they're, they're not. Grand, I don't. I don't know what, what you're going to do. They're not it. interchangeable yet. Now, and they're more expensive. I mean, the dry sensor technology is an active amplifier. It's not just an electrode that goes to an amplifier. You actually have little amplifiers right at the electrode sites for the better ones. You know, very expensive polymer coated little comb things that stick through hair if you've got hair. Yeah, that the it's high level engineering. Uh, they're they're using graphene. I mean, they're there's some really high level stuff that's going on and they're getting better and better and better. Uh, dry sensor technology a decade ago was mm, not ready for prime time. There's some that are very, very close. Uh, the, the, the Korean device that's out for beta testing right now uh, is still not through beta testing. So we really can't say based on actual data, how good that one is. Um, uh, G tech in Europe, uh, is putting out one based on graphene, uh, but they're, they were still intending to do a limited number of channels, uh, not full 19. So, you know, they're, they're getting there, but I, you know, again, I, uh, I, I do uh, medical reports based on EEG and they're, they're not quite to the point where the quality is fully adequate. You know, the, the companies that make them will argue that they are, but I'm an end user who, uh, looks at EG quality and too many electrode pops, too many pulse artifacts, too much drift and sway. And it's, it's just not really quite there yet. Part of the equipment though, 
it's not just the amplifier. You need the software to do something with that data. Yeah. What software should uh, a new clinician look at? There's lots of software available for analysis. Um, you can spend 10,000 or more for some packages, uh, but you can also go to a university and find MATLAB and EEG Lab. EEG Lab is a shareware tool set uh, uh, that goes with MATLAB. A MATLAB uh, license for personal use is a few hundred bucks, not, not a few thousand, but a few hundred. And EEG Lab is all the tools you'll ever need for EEG analysis and some you'll never need and probably couldn't figure out. I mean, really high level stuff. So, uh, you know, the, the analysis goes from expensive uh, software packages uh, uh, down, down to shareware. Uh, if your budget isn't there, you have to think uh, solidly about whether the shareware is going to be adequate for your purpose. Because it's got lots and lots of options and lots and lots of power, the EEG lab uh, takes a little bit of experience to get good at using it. It's not, it's not packaged for the end user with everything already up and running. It takes a little bit of a learning curve. But there are courses and online YouTube instruction on how to use EEG lab and MATLAB. Again, if you don't have the budget for a, a, a pre-packaged software package at, at uh, between uh, two and a half and 10,000 or more, then EEG lab, MATLAB is your, your option. Um, I have urged people who were working uh, commercially with their own software to look at EEG lab techniques as well, because EEG lab just opened up their package for programmers to use modules out of it and embed them in their own software. So the high level processing from EEG lab is now being embedded into some of the software packages that are out there. They don't have to pay licensing fees to the uh, uh, to the, the developers of the shareware of EEG Lab, they're they're giving that away uh, to the developers for free. So uh, the you, you'll find the tools from EEG Lab are being embedded into the commercial packages as well. Software is impressive, right? You look at this stuff and you're and you're literally seeing you know 3D pictures on a 2D screen of a brain. Um, you know, superimposed with someone's data so it can give you, again, literally pictures of how this particular person's brain's working. Like, it's impressive. Um, some of the stuff we use through NeuroGuide, not, you know, maybe a plug, maybe not, but like you're looking at it and you're like, holy cow, this is, uh, I'm, I'm awed, you know, at it. The data or, or the images that you see are based on the data that you've chosen. And so therein lies the importance of being able to analyze EEG raw data yeah. to pick the right data, right? Like it's, yeah. Hey, look at this cool thing. Um, you know, I just did some neuropsych testing. Here's my neuropsych eval. Um, but it also includes, you know, a, an hour and a half when the person wasn't sitting in their seat, but I, I included that data as well. Meaning, Hey, I'm giving you a report, but it, it includes some data that's, that's, you know, providing false information overall. So Hopefully that analogy yeah. sticks with folks, but so you got to pick the right squiggly lines and that comes yeah. with experience and, and, you know, right. So yeah. all that to ask this, and I promise I'm not looking for a shortcut in education, but does the MATLAB or the EEG software somehow assist with that? I know some of the programs we have, you know, helps you, co you know, quote, clean up 
the data, you know, and taking out artifact, but ultimately it's your eyes that are making the decision. Yeah. There, there is in the uh, component analysis of the EEG, uh, in EEG lab, there's an artificial intelligence scrubbing of the data that has been provided as well that will predict whether the components that you're looking at are artifact or not. Now, those aren't perfect, but they're better than not having anybody's opinion. Uh, it, it, it's true. Garbage in, garbage out. If you take an EG that's full of artifact and you just map it, you're going to have uh, a, a poor representation of what's really going on. And there's, there's a lot of... <laughs> my, my old business partner used to have a joke uh, about, yeah, we map your crap. You know, so uh, that's, that's not what you want to be doing as a service. You know, we basically uh, have to know EEG well enough to be able to say this is artifact or this is real. And you have to be able to uh, de-artifact the EEG and still have enough total time so that the segment that you're looking at is representative of actual EEG. Is this a reliable piece? Now, some software will give you reliability statistics, but you know that I grew up in farm country, and, and if, if you see a big pasture, the pasture has got all this wonderful grass that the cows eat and stuff, but it also has cow pies. So if you go through the field and you do a general random sampling of, of the field, you're going to get a little bit of everything and be able to analyze what's actually in the field. But let's say you had a a bias towards picking up cow pies instead of picking up grass. At the end of your collection, you could divide the pile of cow pies into two piles and it'd be highly reliable. Both piles are still the same stuff, but really all you've got is a pile of crap, you know? And, and if you're not doing proper uh, uh, data analysis and sampling, you, you can end up with a high, highly reliable set of, uh, of EEG samples but they don't really represent the, the, the underlying EEG properly. So you really have to know EEG well. Uh, you can't just find pieces you like and have software find similar pieces because that'll be highly reliable, but it might just be a pile of crap. You've got to know EEG. Now, if you don't know EEG, there's lots of ways to learn EEG. There's courses out there that teach about EEG. Uh, the asset is a, a EEG tech group. AAPB, ISNR, coursework again. Um, there, there's you know, individual uh, uh, mentors that can end up counseling you about what you're looking at and help teach you. So, you know, it, uh, don't feel like you're there all by yourself. You bought your software and, and you're on your own. Uh, network with people at no EEG. And if you've got a question about an EEG, you should have a network of people you can interact with to say, hey, I found something I've never seen before. What the hell is this? At, at that point, you know, you've got to be hooked in with a network of people. And if, if they don't know, the, the network needs to reach out to people with credentials that can actually answer the questions. They're out there. You know, the, the people that know EG well enough to identify real from Memorex are out there. If you don't know it well enough on an individual EG, share it, uh, up, upstream it. There's somebody a little higher on the learning curve than you are uh, that will be able to answer your question. By the way, the learning curve has no top. So there's not an expert in EEG that's the expert that's on top of the curve that knows everything. Don't expect to find one.
If somebody says I'm the expert and I know everything in EG, run. They're dangerous, you know. <laughs> so uh, um, it's an unending learning curve, which is why I've enjoyed being on it. Uh, um, if it was an easy one, I would have been bored to death. So, um, and and I'm I'm more fascinated by it now than I was when I was 21 with my own lab, and I I was a pretty excitable kid. So, being more excited about it now is kind of almost hard to imagine. As a newbie, you're, you're as a newbie today, um, I appreciate you saying that, but also to be proficient, you, you need a sounding board. You need to be able to ask questions. I find that with neurofeedback as well. And unless you have someone you can bounce things off of, it can be frustrating and discouraging and um, isolating. And you're like, well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I'm not sure where to go from here. But if you can ask and and then share and show things, it, it just facilitates the learning process. So I'd say it's essential to have uh, a, a group or, or an association that you're part, a part of. I had a question. Hey, what did they do with that $165,000 amps? <laughs> well, the FDA busted them. Oh. <laughs> that, that was Cadwell's Spectrum 32, which was uh, approved FDA registered the device, but then they stuck in the discriminants, which were software that would tell you, is this unipolar or bipolar depression, you know, alcoholism versus normal. I mean, they had a whole bunch of discriminants. One, is this one category A or category B? And uh, those didn't go through FDA clearance and they added in that software package. And that's a diagnostic. Are you this or are you that? Mm -hmm. And clinicians were using it and the FDA found out about it and they went to Cadwell and said, um, you, you know, you've, you've got a non FDA registered device. Software is a device. You know, it's not just the hardware, it's the software that runs it as well. So uh, you violated your FDA registration. You have a million dollar fine wow. un unless you comply, in which case the fine goes down to $100,000. Cadwell had already sold to everybody who was going to buy one of their devices. They figured they'd already saturated the market. Why are we going to go through uh, probably close to a million dollars worth of FDA registration hoops uh, when we don't really have the ability to sell any more of these. So they basically shut their operation down. Those $165,000 devices are now perfectly good as a boat anchor. Uh, they had a Y2K problem. Uh, FDA put a person in their office at a desk to make sure that they didn't interact with any of their clients. If you had your device, it was going to go bad in the year 2000 because it had a two-digit you know, date of birth year. So it, you couldn't figure out how old the person was anymore. Um, you know, that the, the, they couldn't support anybody that uh, the, there was a way to, you know, set your computer clock to some time back in the 1960s that had the right, it was before its time. And it was based on a 386 with accelerator boards. So it was, <laughs> you know, uh, it was, uh, it was rapidly being outpaced by the computers that were being developed. Now, Lexicor was also busted by the FDA, and they went through FDA registration. They paid only a $100,000 fine, and they operated for a few more years and then kind of closed, closed up shop too. Uh, other devices were being actively developed, and the market was small, and 
you know, you can sell into a niche market and saturate it and you can't sell anymore. So uh, uh, th those early QEG devices are gone. And to a certain extent, probably so much the better. You know, the, the, the quality of the devices that are out there for EG amplification now, the sample rates, the, you know, just the things are better now than they were. Okay, guys. So we talked about equipment, software, Lisa C. She got her money's worth. Uh, just to throw one last thing on the equipment part, I would imagine whatever training you go through for the equipment that you buy, you need a good mentor, right? To help you guide, guide yeah. your Sherpa. Yeah. Okay. If, if you've taken a weekend wonder workshop, of you know how to operate the device, you know how to operate the device, not necessarily how to use it in the clinical practice. So, it's you know you've got to network up with folks that are going to help uh, you know, hold your hand when you've got questions, provide you with consultation and and advice. You know, in psychology, uh, you you get your degree and then you take your license or exam and you get to hang out your shingle but you also have supervision and people that you consult with. And that's, that's part of the profession and neurofeedback. It's the same thing that now it may not be as formalized, but we need to have people that aren't just isolated practitioners. They have to be networked with other people to help ratchet their skill set up as well. The tests that you take BCIA, QEG exams, whatever they are, those are basic level exams. These aren't, this is as good as you can get level exams. They're, this is the base level of knowledge you need to be able to start and uh, operate in, a, in a, an appropriate way. So uh, don't, don't just look for the BCAA, look for years of experience. Um, there was a study in QEG uh, out of uh, uh, University of North Texas and uh, I think Larry, Larry Johnson, if I'm not mistaken, is the name of the student. And uh, he collected uh, EG and de-artifacted it, sent exactly the same data to 15 different QEG commercial services and asked for recommendations for neurofeedback. And he got back 15 very different recommendations. And at first it looked like just chaos, you know, and he went to his, his professor, Jeannie uh, Bodenhammer Davis, when she was still teaching, and said, what the hell is this? This is a mess. You know, all these widely discrepant recommendations from the same exact data set. And she said, well, split the group of 15 commercial services into those with more than five years and less than five years of experience and see whether that has an impact. Sure enough, the ones with more than five years of experience all had kind of one thing that they were focusing on the less than five years of experience, some of them were saying, do a session here, then a session there, then a session here, then a session there. And if you, if you change what you're training every single session, what kind of a learning curve are you going to have? So uh, the, it still was buyer beware. Larry tried to publish his results. The Journal of Neurotherapy back then, it was still called the Journal of Neurotherapy, um, refused to publish it. And the, the editor uh, just sent it back. And, and I'm thinking, well, why? And it was just politically too embarrassing to show the scattering of, of results. And 
uh, I, I uh, chastised the journal for uh, not being scientific with their response, but being political with their response. And if you're a scientific journal, you publish science, you don't worry about the politics. And they finally published it with a giant cover letter, basically, uh, caveat, 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 well, here's, the, here's the, the data. Don't just look for minimum standards, look for experience, because experience kind of bumps you along and it polishes off all the rough edges. Um, the, the pounding you get after many years uh, kind of takes off, off all those rough edges. So you, you get a, a, a better, uh, higher level of, of uh, experience, you got a better uh, set of results. That was a pretty good one. I think everybody got a little something. The parents, the tech, the clinicians, uh, the end users. Uh, great show, guys. We want to thank everybody for listening to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. Jay Gunkelman, yep. There's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google, but you can also get his links in the podcast notes below. Idea for a topic like Lisa C., just email Pete at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Cue the copyrighted music.